Good evening, this is Aliska van Voort for Radio Tijgerberg, Salt and Light. Tonight we are dealing with 40 years of serving the persecuted Christians. In the studio we have Dr. Hammond with us. Dr. Hammond, this week Frontline Fellowship celebrates 40 years of cross-border missions throughout Africa. What led you to launch this mission 40 years ago? Well, my conversion to Christ came along with my call. I knew that I was called to missions from the day I was converted, which was actually 45 years ago, the 3rd of April, 1977. I was confronted with the gospel and I was converted. And the first missionary came past my church, Francis Grimm of Hospital Christian Fellowship. I joined his mission. <laughs> and uh, I was so enthusiastic for missions, I did the first thing that came past, you know, first time they needed some for script union, holiday missions, I was involved in that. Well, the first full-time missionary I met was Francis Grimm. So when I joined Hospital Christian Fellowship, their philosophy was more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. And so the vision was recruit Christians, train, evangelize, disciple, hospital personnel, whether they be doctors, nurses, pharmacists, whether they're orderlies, and in the hospital environment, they will be able to evangelize and disciple patients, other medical people, and family members. And it's, it's a wonderful mission field. So that was a great vision. Well, shortly after getting involved with them, I got my military call-up, which all young men got at that stage. And as I went into the South African Defence Force, I was frustrated because while my whole life I'd want to be a soldier, now I want to be a missionary. And I thought, this is going to waste two years of my life. But very quickly, the Lord opened my eyes, is this not a mission field? You're surrounded by young people, many of whom obviously do not know the Lord. So I started Bible study and prayer fellowship. And because I couldn't go on missions, we started to pray for other countries. And we prayed through Operation World, which I'd been introduced to through HCF. And Patrick Johnson had put together this handbook for intercessors with a chapter in every book on every country in the world. So... Where did we start to pray? Well, naturally our neighboring countries, which were our enemies in the conflicts at that time, Mozambique, Angola. Well, it very quickly struck me. The least evangelized country in the Southern Hemisphere, Mozambique, right next to us, how can that be? Not one Bible for a thousand people in the country, nobody under 18 allowed in churches, no missionaries allowed. Wow. And I started to, as we prayed for Mozambique, it was quite clear, as soon as we leave the army, maybe we could cross the border and take Bibles to the Jesus form, reach out to people. So uh, that's what led to the launch of the mission. It was conversion, call, missions, learning from HEF, Operation World, and the need, the desperate need in Mozambique back in the 1980s. Wow, that's an amazing testimony. What obstacles did you face as you sought to mobilize missionary outreaches into Mozambique? Well, the first obstacle was no mission was willing to support us. I, I went around, I hitchhiked. I must have seen more than 50 different mission leaders around the country. We've got some young people who've been in the army, who are keen to be missionaries, willing to go into the restricted access areas, the persecuted churches and so on. And uh, I was told over and over, it's not legal, it's not possible, it's too dangerous, this isn't the right time, you're not the right people, you don't have enough experience all of which was probably true. But uh, because no one was willing, I I was so frustrated. In the end, Francis Grimm said to me, because I was still under HCF at the time, he said, you start a mission. You've got the vision. You get the job. And that's why I was so hesitant. Um, because I thought, but I'm too young. I'm only 21. What do I know? Um, how can I start a mission? 21. And so that's why we've even got the name Frontline Fellowship, because I was 
concerned, you know, we can't start a mission. We, we, it's just a fellowship. We're a fellowship of people who've been in the front line. We're concerned for the front line states. At that time, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, Zambia were all called the front line states. So they called themselves in the front line against South Africa. We had been the front line in the army. And so it was a bit of a play on words and wanting to be in the front line of missions. But the word was fellowship. You know, it wasn't frontline mission because I felt that would be too presumptuous. We can't start a mission, but do we have fellowship who are willing to go into the field? So even, even the name, probably it was also uh, affected by the concept of hospital Christian fellowship, which is the mission I came out of. So frontline fellowship. And, well, of course, first of all, uh, we didn't know the language. Um, nextly, we didn't know anyone in Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique is a closed country. We had no diplomatic relations with Mozambique. There's no Mozambique consul in South Africa at that time. There was no South African consul in Mozambique. Our countries were effectively at war, actually. And, uh, you know, they were supporting guerrillas who were coming over and planting bombs here, like Church Street Bomb. Uh, we were sending reconnaissance commando attacks there and air forces doing some bombing. So, yeah, our countries were effectively at low-level conflict. And... Uh, uh, it, it looked it, it did look too dangerous and ridiculous, and uh, some people questioned my sanity. And uh, uh, it, it, of course, there's the finances. I mean, where are we going to get the finances for this? And well, just come out the army, had a bit of army pay, could buy a motorbike, most expensive. I mean, it's the cheapest form of transport we could buy. Couldn't afford anything more expensive. We could afford a hundred New Testaments and Portuguese and Shangon and World Missionary Press provided gospel booklets. That's vital, but we still didn't know anyone or know any of the language. So you can imagine we were going pretty blind on a faith mission. Wow. What responses did you encounter in Mozambique and were the people receptive? They were very receptive. In fact, it was quite astounding because, you know, going into a country that's officially communist, officially atheist. In fact, Samora Michel declared that he had established the first truly atheistic country in Africa. He had destroyed 8,000 churches. He had imprisoned hundreds of thousands of people, counter-revolutionaries, reactionaries, black marketeers. Those are the words he used. And the situation was quite oppressive, and uh, the people were crushed. Uh, they were starving. Uh, the situation was desperate. They were exporting food to Cuba and Romania and so on, but uh, the people are starving. Green country, a country where you'd think with bananas and coconuts growing around it, how could anyone starve? But they were starving because of scorched earth. And it, it was a very bad time to go to Mozambique. I'm talking about early 1982. Easter 1982, we crossed the border into Mozambique to take Bibles in and to evangelize. And I must say, I was astounded. I mean, the first thing we saw was potholed roads, Cities in blackout, no uh, electricity at all. You know, we might get power failures here, but they sometimes got electricity, maybe once a week. I mean, it was mostly power failure. The people would have taps open, a bucket under every tap, plug in every bath, because occasionally some water would come through. But um, there was no such thing as plumbing on a normal basis. And the situation was, was pretty dire and desperate. And when I first came into Maputo, it was pitch dark, there was no street light, total darkness. You can imagine, quite airy, first time being in. Everything looks unusual, strange, foreign. And I'm just greeting strangers on, on the road and nobody's answering me back because I'm speaking English. And I uh, didn't know any Portuguese yet. And one person responded, hello, back to me. And I turned and I said, do you speak English? And he said, yes. And I said, hallelujah. And he said, praise the Lord. And I said, oh, you're a Christian. We were, um, and he said, you must come stay in my house and... Phew, Major answered prayer. We had no idea where we were going to stay. 
He said, do you have a translator? I speak Ronga, Tsonga, Tswa, Shangan, fluently. He said, you've got the job. And I don't know if he slept that night, but by the next morning, he had a lot of people coming to an underground church service. It was illegal at that stage. And he had hundreds of people gathered for us to speak to by the next morning uh, in some shot out, burned out building without any roof, and uh, which used to be a church. So uh, the enthusiasm, the people hugging and dancing and kissing us both cheeks and in the Portuguese style and dancing to receive Bibles. The response that we got was so overwhelming that we never stopped going back. Wow. And so in addition to that answer to prayer, what are some other answers to prayers that you experienced? Well, just to show how inexperienced and lack of research that I'd done, I'd brought along 16 um, millimeter film uh, four reels of the Jesus film in 16 mil, and uh, I was planning to do film evangelism. The Jesus film had just come out the year before, and this is the latest in missionary technology, the Jesus film, which was actually very powerful for, for our teachers, and you know, available in Portuguese, and so that was great. So I'm, I'm coming in with 16 mils of Jesus film, and at the first meeting I tell the people, we've brought the Jesus film. Ah, people are all excited. I said, um, but we don't have a projector or generator, and you could just see <laughs> everyone with their heads going down like, what? You're coming to a city of perpetual power failure. They didn't say this. Um, <laughs> and you expect us filming, you don't even have a projector, uh, let alone a generator. Well, despite that, that obvious downer, um, somebody came to me after and said, I work at the British Embassy. Come along to the corner of Vladimir Lenin and Mao Zedong, that's the name of the streets, Vladimir Lin, Tong, <laughs> and I'll see if the consul's willing to lend you uh, the British consul's 16 mil projector because we've got one. Well, fair enough. I went along there and I did have a British passport so because my father had fought in the Second World War so I, I, I had a British passport even though I'd never lived there. And uh, so I went to the British Embassy and the chap concerned was very friendly and positive and I'm willing to lend you our projector. He says that's not a problem but he says... We can't spare any generator. We don't have any generator that's portable. And I must tell you, he says, you don't get electricity but for a couple of hours a week. Uh, so I don't know how you're going to show this, but, you know, you're welcome. So I took that long and, okay, so we don't have power. Um, well, we just got to trust God. So rigged it up. Now, of course, you go into the, the church building that we've got to show it and didn't have a roof. It didn't have windows you can see the place being burned out, looted. There wasn't pews. It was it was a mess, and um, and there weren't any plugs in the walls, but there were some holes in the walls where there were some wires dangling. Well, I don't know if these wires still work, but let's try. So I had to unscrew the plug things and wind the wires together and set it up and told the people we're having to film. And I mean, talk about a faith mission. And so I'm uh, all happily playing this and thinking. Lord, if you want us to show this film, um, only you can provide electricity. And would you believe it? We've got everything set up there. I preach to the people, the sun's setting, it's dark, and I'm preaching by torchlight, and the lights come on. So we quickly started the film, showed, and the, it continued for about an hour and a half, absolutely outstanding. And then just during the crucifixion scene, the middle of the crucifixion scene, power goes out. Well, that's not bad. I mean, we've got that far. I stood up and I preached in the cross, of course, through translator and, and with torch and so on in this pitch darkness. And while I'm preaching on the cross, the lights come on again. They said that never happens. When, when you have some power, you won't get any more for about another week. I mean, this is 
April 1982, remember. So we had, so we continued the film through the resurrection, the ascension, the Great Commission being given, and then the power went out again. It was only on for a short while, but it was enough. We'd finished the film. I did more preaching, and to show you the kind of young uh, evangelist I was at that time, I said, you've seen the film. Now read the book and meet the star. And so I was <laughs> handing out Gospels of Luke uh, to the people in Portuguese and Shangon and, you know, telling them to come forward. Now, they, you know, we want to introduce you to the Lord Jesus, the star of the film and so on. And well, anyway, um, the Lord was gracious. And the second time that I did this, and we had electricity each time. We had uh, in the dark, I mean, pitch, pitch dark, out comes a whole lot of, I give the altar call, a whole lot of people in camouflage uniforms carrying AK-47s come towards you. And my heart just leapt in my throat. I thought, that's it, I'm about to get arrested. And they came to the front and they knelt down, put their rifles to the ground there. They were wanting to give the lives to the Lord. They were responding to the altar call. First ones forward, these Philemo soldiers. Unreal. So we saw some pretty wonderful, incredible answers to prayer. Oh, praise God for that. And what did you learn in Mozambique? I learned that the people didn't have much, but they could still be joyful. One person said, our only happiness comes from God. Another person said uh, that uh, they have taken everything from us, but God is with us. And uh, we, we heard from so many people um, uh, the joy that they had in following the Lord. In fact, I remember one person, as I was, I was commiserating with this pastor, who had so many of his congregation many of his congregation were forced to work overseas, sent to the sugarcane plantations in Cuba to work as indentured laborers, almost slaves, effectively, to work in the factories of East Germany and so on in Russia. And so, uh, And they had no choice. They were just conscripted off here and there. And I said, that's terrible. He said, no, no. He said, don't cry for us. We were a selfish church. We never sent out missionaries. We never prayed for other countries. He said, we never cared about even our neighbors said, God is judging us now, and rightly so. But now we train all our members to be missionaries. And when the Russians, when the communists come, say, you must go to Russia and you must go to Cuba, we bring them to the front church, we lay our hands on them, and we commission them as our missionaries. He said, how many churches have the privilege of having 20% of the members on the foreign mission fields of the world, and the communists pay to get them there? Now, that kind of attitude, I came back and I thought, I was so encouraged, so inspired that the persecuted church had a lot to teach us, that we weren't just going to teach and bless them. They were actually teaching us. And so right from the very, very beginning, went into Mozambique. I went there to give them Bibles and show them Jesus for them to be an encouragement. But in fact, they encouraged, inspired, challenged me, taught me. So I came back more determined to challenge our churches back home. And I think that's the way it's meant to be, mm. that the mission field's meant to inspire the sending church and sending church men to help the folks in the mission fields and together we can become better stronger closer to the lord and to one another mm, yes what other countries did you minister in well mozambique was our first big mission field throughout the 80s i did a lot of work there but then soon the lord led us to angola which was actually even harder very hard the war there was much more intense lots of cuban troops tens of thousands of cuban troops russians east germans Vietnamese, vast amounts, Koreans. There was a really large amount of Soviet Warsaw Pact uh, countries involved in Angola. And it was extremely dangerous, crossing the rivers, uh, getting across minefields, getting into these dangerous areas. So 
Angola was a major mission field, Zimbabwe, although generally at peace, there was a lot of what they called dissident movement and 5th Brigade and uh, there was massacres going on Madibila and so 1980s there was a lot of turmoil in, in Zimbabwe as well. We worked there. Zambia as well, although I ended up in prison my very first time going to Zambia mm-hmm. and uh, we began working to Malawi mainly because there's so many Mozambican refugees in Malawi and from Malawi we did most of our work into Mozambique because in fact very easy to get translators there because the people in Malawi speak Chichewa and a lot of the Mozambicans on each side of Malawi, east and west, speak Chichewa as well. So that was an area we were able to do a lot of crossings in and out of Malawi and Mozambique. And uh, then the Lord led us even further up, Congo, Nigeria, Rwanda, Burundi, Sudan. Uh, so um, uh, through this work, I've actually now ministered in the last 40 years in 38 countries. I've traveled in 42 countries, but I've ministered in 38 countries. And I've been involved in eight wars as a missionary, eight wars and three revolutions. So it's it's been an extraordinary opportunity to get so far. But also in the 80s, we ministered throughout Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. Poland in north, all the way down to Albania in the south, Romania, Bulgaria, Czech, Slovakia, Yugoslavia, Croatia. Uh, it was absolute trends, Bulgaria. Uh, so, yes, um, the mission fields are mostly Eastern Europe and Africa. Oh, in 38 countries. What were the challenges and needs of the churches that you encountered? Well, the first thing that I'd ask going into any village such as in Angola would be, where's your local church? And they'd point to a burnt-out place. Mm. So that was the church. Where's your pastor? The Cubans shot him. What can we do to help you? And the answer was, Biblia, Biblia. They wanted Bibles. And so we could see the very first need was Bibles. And so... Many of the churches we went to in Mozambique and Gola were burned or destroyed or confiscated or locked up, barred and bolted. And so uh, that was the first problem that most congregations we went to didn't even have a building. But as we know, the church is not buildings. The church is people. People love God. And you can't destroy the church by burning buildings because the church is people who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. His names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and therefore... Jesus is the resurrection and life. Death for the Christian is not fatal. It's not final. And we started to get a different perspective. But I, I think the biggest needs always was they wanted Bibles. Second request was Bible teaching, leadership training. And then thirdly, they started asking for medical help. And, uh, of course, there are many people without limbs, landmines, booby traps. And Gola had more landmines than people. The uh, situation was desperate. A lot of people, we need to take in crutches and we need to take in wheelchairs and not just normal wheelchairs. I mean, you can imagine that kind of soft sand. Uh, we need more like these tricycle type of, um, so you can't call them bicycles, or, or uh, so that they could, even the people who had lost a limb could could uh, be transported and sort of the off-road versions, very tough. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the needs were so great, we had to bring in medical missionaries, had to bring in medic bags and, and uh, people who could train their medical people. So the challenges were were huge. But most of all, in addition to the Bibles, they wanted visits, encouragement to know they weren't alone, that they weren't forgotten, and that we could speak up for them. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's still the need. Everyone wants and needs Bibles in their languages. How was Frontline Fellowship able to respond to the desperate needs? Well, you know, we didn't have much. We were just a very, well, we're not that big now, but but we were minuscule at, at the beginning. It's just a few people on motorbikes and um, 
we didn't have much except the Jesus form and World Missionary Press Gospel booklets and some New Testaments and Bibles that we could afford. That's how we started. But we were able to speak up. And before you knew it, we were getting on radio programs, TV programs, speaking to us, being able to make their, their testimonies known. I could produce books like In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Holocaust and Rwanda, Faith Under Fire and uh, And the words got out. And so through books and newsletters, in public meetings, we could speak up for the persecuted church and mobilize more prayer and action. And then we were able to bring in friends who could do more to help them, who had bigger resources, such as I recruited Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse to come into Sudan to establish the first hospital for South Sudan. And uh, that, that was so meaningful because they didn't have a hospital for five million people. We had started a few clinics, but they were pretty primitive, couldn't do surgery, but basically just first aid. But Samaritan's Purse came in and they brought in surgeons and they brought in containers full of medicines and they were able to treat hundreds of thousands of patients, save hundreds of thousands of lives ultimately and limbs. Uh, so Samaritan's Purse recruiting them was, was one major victory. We were able to bring in filmmakers like Jeremiah Films, Pat Matriciano, to produce films like Sudad and Hidden Holocaust, which was seen by millions of people and mobilized a lot of prayer and action on behalf of South Sudan and helped lead to the independence of South Sudan ultimately. We were able to recruit many other ministries and we were approached and asked to take and voice the martyrs people into New Mountains on the first time. We were able to deliver Bibles for open doors into places in Sudan that, that had not received them before. And so I think what we were able to do and, and respond to the challenges, network, bring in good resources. We didn't ever try to reinvent the wheel. You know, gospel recordings has already got things in there. Languages, let's get the gospel recordings materials. Oh, there's the God story in Arabic. And uh, we took on those VCD kits, uh, the Jesus form materials. We trained the people. And at the end, we donate the full kit, the screen that generated the whole lot for the evangelists to carry on showing it when we went home. And then we'd raise money for another one as we came back in. And so whether it's the gospel recordings, messengers, with the audio Bibles, which are hand cranked or solar panel powered, taking things that were... Uh, practical, usable, could operate in the dusty and non-electricity environments where they didn't have access to battery sound, but solar panel, hand-cranked, you know, these things could work. Um, I think that what we were able to do most of all was train hundreds of pastors in each country and hundreds of teachers and chaplains, uh, such as the first 70 chaplains in the South Sudan Independence Force, uh, the Army of South Sudan, the SPLA, as they were called then, and to train uh, the medics, the chaplains, leadership training, love in action, literature. Um, just in Sudan, we delivered 950,000 Bibles, New Testaments, and Christian books in the last 25 years. And, I mean, this is just God's grace and mercy that we could do this since 1995 in Sudan alone. So, yes, um, I would say we were able to respond by recruiting more people, mobilizing, and it just shows you don't need a big budget. You don't need a lot of people to make an impact because we just need to be available. The ability is all of God. It's not our abilities. It's God's ability. It's our availability. And then God works as a channel, even through humble, inadequate vessels. I mean, if he could speak through Balaam's donkey, and if he could give victory through a jawbone of a donkey to Samson, then God can use anything, a staff. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, but if we're just available, then it's incredible what God can accomplish. Amen. 
You must have experienced many changes over the last four decades. So what are some of the changes in this mission that you've noticed? Well, just take the fact that my first missionary call from Hospital Christian Fellowship came by telegram. Now, I know some people say, oh, I've got an app of telegram. No, no, this is the old telegrams used to come in envelope. It was uh, strips of typing that were put on a piece of paper, uh, literally glued on and put an envelope and delivered to you. So telegram, telex. Uh, we used to have a telex address on our letterheads. And I remember the fax came and wow, did we feel supersonic uh, space age. We now had a fax machine. And, uh, you know, of course, those things have virtually disappeared now. Uh, when we started going into the field, there would be no way you could contact home till you got back home. Nothing. There's no such thing as portable phones. But at a certain point, to get the Nuba Mountains, we needed satellite phones. Now, satellite phones were so necessary for being able to communicate. And we also used shortwave radios. So we'd be traveling the field with shortwave radios. And when the day came that we could use shortwave radios that could even send emails, I mean, it just seemed like magic that that was possible. So I've seen technology advance a lot. When we started our work, we were using generators carrying vast amounts of fuel in order to show the Jesus form. Well, now we use solar panels and uh, little compact battery packs with a video projector to show uh, DVDs. And it's so much lighter and more, less complicated. So a lot of missions have become easier. And now, of course, you've got GPSs. Unbelievable. I only know about how to handle the hard cover, hard copy maps. Uh, so uh, a lot of that's changed. And the biggest, uh, most extraordinary uh, changes in, in many ways has been um, – the communication technologies, the, the ability to have so many different languages available, so many of the languages that weren't available in print before are now. So I was able to take in the first complete Bible in a moral language, which is just so wonderful. The people had never had the, the Old Testament before. They had the New Testament when we started our work in 95. But by the year 2000, we could take in the whole Bible and Moro. And to see the excitement and Kronger when we took the first New Testament in them. So there's so many places that we've seen the people go from no Bibles, just the gospel, just the book of Genesis, uh, just the book of Matthew, uh, until now they've got the whole Bible. So yes, I've seen a lot of changes and, and a lot of it's been very good. What would you identify as some of the greatest answers to prayers in the last 40 years of the mission? Well, it's to me, obviously, I've got to say that one big thing is the coming down of the Berlin Wall. Now, you've got to have lived under this to have understood just how it seemed the most immovable obstacle imaginable. 1980s, the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain, the division of Europe between slave and free, between communist and, and free enterprise was just, it was a movable fact of history. And yet I saw the launch of the seven-year Jericho prayer march and the to bring 1982, the launch of the Leipzig prayer meetings, which led to the seven-year Jericho prayer march focus on bringing down the Iron Curtain, collapsing the Soviet bloc, and seeing Eastern Europe open up for the gospel. And it happened in 1989. We saw one of the other communist countries toppled, the Berlin Wall dismantled by the population, and the whole of the Iron Curtain collapsed and dismantled. And greater religious freedoms in Eastern Europe than anyone had ever dreamed imaginable. Absolutely extraordinary. Mozambique, which was the most closed country in the Southern Hemisphere, the least evangelized country in the Southern Hemisphere. Not 4% of the people of Mozambique would have called themselves Christians in 1982 when we began our work. Today, according to Operation Board, 34% would call themselves Bible-believing evangelical Christians, independents, charismatics, or or um, a Pentecostal. So the growth of church Mozambique, and Mozambique's open for the gospel. 
wide open. In fact, Christian schools and churches are operating there with complete freedom. So it's amazing to see the change. I can say the same. Angola's free and open. Rwanda, wide open for the gospel and so on. So uh, South Sudan is independent now and uh, free from, from Islamic Sudan. So, yes, we've seen some stupendous answers to prayer. Wonderful. What are you planning to do to mark this 40-year milestone? Well, I've produced a book, Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, which is 448 pages, 440 pictures and maps. Uh, it's it's uh, cataloging a lot of the great answers to prayer and the international intrigues and the testimonies of the persecuted church. And so uh, we are going to, uh, this coming Thursday, the 7th of April, we are having a celebration at our mission, which anyone in Cape Town's welcome to come to. At 7 p.m. we will be uh, looking over 40 years of God's faithfulness and answers to prayer and launching the book Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. Wow. And how can listeners get involved in the mission? Well, we run a Great Commission course every year and we will have our next one June, July, three-week intensive back, uh, body, mind, spirit mission. You can contact mission at frontline.org.za or visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Wonderful. That was Dr. Hammond on 40 years of serving the persecuted Christians. Have a good evening and good God bless.